How do we tackle misinformation online? Or make something fake news? Who decides? Join senior journalist at Business News Matt McKenzie, ABC reporter Samantha Gerling, and Dr. Toby Pryke from the School of Psychological Sciences tackle the topic, how misinformation spreads faster than truth. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Hall of Winthrop. It's a University of Western Australia podcast designed to engage with the alumni community to showcase the impact our graduates are having and to build awareness of UWA research. I'm Matt McKenzie, I'm a senior journalist at Business News and I'm your host for this edition about misinformation and how it spreads faster than the truth. And we've got two great guests to discuss that topic today. Samantha Gerling, a reporter at ABC. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you. And Dr. Toby Pryke, a research associate at the School of Psychological Science. Welcome, Toby. Thanks, Matt. Before we get into the, the deep issue of the day, tell us a little bit about what you do, a bit about yourself, and your favourite hangout at UWA. Let's start with you, Samantha. Sure. Hi, like you said, I'm Samantha Gerling. So I'm a former uh, UWA student and graduate. I studied the Bachelor of Philosophy with majors in politics, international relations and French. Um, and then I went on to study broadcasting as a postgraduate degree. And I've since worked as either a French teacher or as a journalist. Um, when I was at UWA, I think one of my favorite hangouts was just skipping down the river for a picnic lunch with friends um, and the swans, of course. Toby, what about you? Yeah, hey, so I'm um, Toby Pryke. I'm a research associate at UWA. So I've only been at UWA for about nine months now, um, but basically my research area is currently focusing on misinformation and um, sort of looking at why are people susceptible to it? Uh, what are the different things we can do to try and combat it? Um, things like that. And probably my favorite spot at UWA would be uh, going to Bayside Kitchen, which is just slightly off campus to grab a coffee and there's a nice view of the river there. So it's a nice spot. Well, thanks both of you for your time and expertise today. Uh, I did a couple of bachelor's degrees in arts and economics and probably my favorite spot on campus was uh, at the bottom of the Reed Library, at least in my first year where it was, uh, it was a bit different back then. It was all full of books, but my friends and I used to have a little area we used to sort of have as our own down there, good memories. To start us off on the topic, uh, Toby, this is obviously a field that you're researching in some depth. So when are people most susceptible to misinformation and has the pandemic shown just how powerful misinformation can be? Yeah, so I think basically we're all quite susceptible to misinformation. So there are some individual differences that so make some people more uh, predisposed to believing misinformation than others. But um, essentially everyone is at least somewhat susceptible to misinformation. Uh, and I think for most people, the time to be especially careful and think when you're probably most at risk of falling for misinformation uh, is when that misinformation is something that aligns with your pre-existing opinions or beliefs. So things that are consistent with your worldview or political views, things like that. Um, those are the situations where you really need to be careful about falling for misinformation because you're already predisposed to want to believe it. Uh, and I also think um, another time when we're at particular risk, which is, this is backed up by the research, is that uh, when people are not sort of thinking carefully or analytically, so um, if you're sort of just going with the flow and not taking time to pause and consider, is this something that seems accurate or you're sort of just skimming through, um, you're probably more at risk of falling for misinformation in those circumstances because uh, we know from the research and things like that that uh, engaging in analytical and reflective processes are really important for helping us to detect sort of what's accurate and what's 
inaccurate. And yeah, I think over the last couple of years of the COVID pandemic, we really have sort of seen some of the dangers of misinformation. Um, I think one of the reasons why we've been particularly prone to it is because uh, there's been so much new information and new developments that have been occurring. So especially early on when there weren't, wasn't yet a lot of evidence and things were changing a lot, sort of there's a lot of new, new information coming in, people have to try and process it. Uh, and in that sort of uh, information heavy environment, people can be particularly prone to being uh, led astray. And I think another thing we've also seen uh, throughout the pandemic is, as I mentioned before, the risk of people being more prone to misinformation if it's consistent with their pre-existing beliefs or worldviews. So we know that sort of people are already prone to believing in conspiracy theories or already have high levels of distrust in the government or big pharma or the media and things like that. Uh, then they tend to be the people who have been even more likely to also sort of uh, go down the rabbit hole and believe in some of the COVID-19 related misinformation and misinformation around vaccines and the like. I think it's an interesting point you make there, particularly about information changing very quickly early on in the pandemic. And I think, um, you know, you see people on social media sometimes linking to things that were from many months before and, and information had changed. So that would add to the problem, I guess. That makes sense. Samantha, you said? Yeah, I think that the COVID pandemic definitely has highlighted how rife misinformation can be and also how it feeds fractures in society. And I think one example of how it also spreads across borders is, for example, there were uh, there have been cases of uh, white extremist groups in the, or sorry, white supremacist groups in the US, which have been spreading misinformation deliberately to remote Indigenous communities uh, in WA. And it just sort of exemplifies how these things don't stay within borders and how it makes it really, really hard to, to control and uh, also just how big of an impact misinformation can have. The fact that after more than two years of a pandemic, some people still don't believe that COVID is a thing. There are some restaurants in the town where I'm living right now that have stickers up that say the media is the virus and they don't believe that COVID is a thing despite the fact that it's killed more than six million people. So I think it just does show how powerful it can be. Um, and once you're in that circle and in, your, in that rabbit hole, how hard it can be to get out. With the uh, stickers about the media being the virus, I will ask you a question on that topic in a moment. But before we do, you've spoken about how things can spread rapidly between borders. So do you think that social media companies are doing enough to combat misinformation? And um, how should society tackle misinformation online, Samantha? I think that we've seen uh, social media companies try to clean up their act a bit and be more proactive at combating misinformation, certain social media companies, especially after uh, all of the election stuff in the US and how much, uh, for example, the former president... Trump would spread misinformation online. Um, so they are doing more, but are they doing enough? I don't think so. I think that even especially on YouTube, I often hear of or meet people who have gone down rabbit holes and believe all sorts of things which are very far from what is widely accepted as, I guess, the truth in mainstream society because of YouTube videos and YouTubers. And Toby, what's your response to that? Yeah, so I think um, I'll start off by just talking sort of a little bit about the different ways that we try and tend to tackle misinformation. Um, 
And probably the two, most of the things that we do to try and tackle misinformation tend to fall into um, a couple of different camps. So one is sort of pre-bunking or education type interventions. So these are generally things that people try and do to teach people about um, what the common rhetorical techniques are, how people might cherry pick data or use emotional appeals, um, appeals to authority, things like that. Uh, and these techniques tend to be sort of aimed at preparing people ahead of time. So trying to sort of do more to educate people and help them avoid becoming susceptible to misinformation uh, in the first place. And then the other main area is for trying to tackle misinformation is things to do with debunking or corrections and things like that. So this is uh, more about trying to counter specific pieces of misinformation that people might have already been exposed to. Um, so this can also include things such as uh, flagging topics and the likes, which people have seen on social media where sort of whenever you see anything related to uh, COVID-19, you tend to see a little warning sort of with links to uh, more legitimate news sources and official organizations and the like. Uh, and we do know with these things that sort of it's more effective to try and counter misinformation if we can uh, provide people with quite a detailed um, like refutation and explain why something is inaccurate and give them an alternative explanation rather than simply labeling something as so rather than just saying this is false or this is misinformation it's better if you can sort of give them an alternative explanation because people don't like stories that kind of have holes in the middle of them they want a complete narrative and then yeah, also things around the trust is a really important factor so if you want to try and combat misinformation then you need to have sources that people trust so that they will actually listen to any of these education or correction interventions and things like that. Um, in terms of social media, I think um, there are a few things we know that would be relatively simple that could potentially help to combat misinformation. Um, it's not necessarily my place to tell social media companies how to run their companies, but we do know that if you can uh, give people prompts or bring awareness to the to things to do with accuracy. So you ask them sort of before they go to share or repost something, you say, do you think this is actually accurate? Then that can actually be quite useful in drawing people's attention and helping them to uh, think twice and reduce the likelihood that they'll spread misinformation. Uh, and I also think there might be a potential role for uh, social media companies because they have so much data on people and what they've been seeing. Um, I think they probably have a bit more of a role to play in terms of ensuring that people who've been exposed to misinformation and they know those people have sort of interacted with or seen uh, this false information in their feed, I think they could potentially do a bit more to make sure that then when there are corrections issued or new information comes out, making sure that those things also appear in their feed sort of to try and prevent people from getting down that rabbit hole and only seeing more and more misinformation and um, conspiratorial type content. To your comment earlier, Samantha, about the shops with the stickers saying the media is the virus, it does seem that there's a lot of people in society that distrust uh, media, and, and that seems to be growing. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on uh, what the media can do broadly in this respect, and if journalists need to take more responsibility to make sure they're being accurate in reporting issues. I think that uh, journalists uh, are often asked to... I guess, take the brunt of people's frustration with misinformation, even if um, I would say that often journalists or mainstream media are not responsible for misinformation or the spread of misinformation. And Toby, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, often it's spread on other platforms um, from non-reputable sources, which at times do purport to be from the media. For instance, I've seen fake ABC News websites. Um, if you look at the URL, you can see that they're not actually 
the ABC News website. They're just pretending to be to try and leverage off that legitimacy. Um, I think that I think you're right, though. There is a, a huge frustration with among people who are unsure about what they can trust. Um, for instance, you know, I just moved into some new apartments. Neighbours on one side uh, said, hi, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a journalist. And they, the first thing they said was, how often do you lie to people? Um, which is quite confronting. But, you know, I had a frank conversation with them that, that's actually the opposite of what I set out to do. What I set out to do is find reputable information um, and present it to people in a way that uh, they have enough accurate information to make an informed decision about an issue themselves and then they can decide their own opinion on it. It's not my place to shove an opinion down their throat and tell them what to think. Um, but I think that there are vast differences in how different news organisations operate I'm very fortunate that uh, well, I, I love working for the ABC and I'm very fortunate I feel like uh, as a public broadcaster, you know, there's this huge emphasis on um, impartiality and the responsibility of reporting accurately and fairly. And I think we do a good job. That's my personal opinion. And I know that a lot of other news organisations are businesses and it's, it's really hard to... Um, to fund a news organisation and to get people to, to click and some news organisations love to lead with the emotive lines, which may not, I don't know, fairly represent an issue. Um, so I <laughs> probably just gone on a little side, side rant there, but um, I think that a lot of journalists do the absolute best that they can uh, in reporting within often short timeframes. Um, and at the same time, it's become a lot cheaper to produce news. Um, if you don't have to, for example, pay for television, anyone can create content online. And a lot of those people might not necessarily have the resources uh, to do so well or uh, there, yeah, anyone, like, yeah, anyone could produce content online and people get confused about who to trust. And I think it's it's fair enough for them to be asking questions when there's been so much misinformation around. But I think, yes, now in a time when misinformation has been rife, it's more important than ever for journalists to be uh, taking care. And I think that I think that they do that. And I think that we are fighting for the reputation of our industry. And I think that, yes, more than ever, people need good, reputable information and we're doing our best. Thanks, Samantha. And to you, Toby, just uh, following up from, from that conversation, do you think journalists need to take more responsibility for making sure what they report is accurate? Or do you think that uh, the responsibility lies with sort of the general public to improve the way that they consume news? Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I think it's quite difficult to sort of lay too much blame at the mainstream media. I think in general, for the most part, lots of journalists do sort of try their best to get it right. Um, I think they can't always get it right, especially because often things have to be reported um, quite quickly. And even as, as we mentioned before, you know, things that were the best information and what everyone believed at the time might subsequently sort of change as more information comes to light. Um, but I think, yeah, generally quite a few, uh, for the most part, the media does try and get it right. I think though, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much of this is also just to do with things like political polarization. And so I think at the moment sort of, Lots of people, particularly in the US, but it seems also sort of in other areas as well, people are coming sort of uh, getting quite high levels of not just sort of support for their side, but more active 
animosity and strong emotional dislike of the other side. And so I think when that happens, sort of, it's hard uh, for not to, to not have everything sort of be stained with that a little bit. So I think um, a lot of that does sort of spill over into journalists, whether that's because um, they actually do have some sort of bias or they have an agenda, or if it's just perceived that way because they're reporting something that people don't necessarily want to hear because it doesn't support their team. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of uh, importance that the media and journalists do do what they can uh, to try and build as much trust as they can with the public. Because as we, as I mentioned before, so if you want to have any chance of actually, you know, using fact checks or trying to correct misinformation, then um, one thing we do know that is really important is that people actually sort of have trust in the sources. So if in order for media organizations to be um, effective at disseminating their information and correcting any false information that might be floating around, it's really important that there is public trust in that institution. So what makes something fake news or misinformation and who is the person or the body or the organization that should, should decide? Uh, and to follow on from that, what strategies should be used to avoid fake news? Toby, we'll start with you on this one. Thanks. So, yeah, I think um, within sort of researcher circles and acad academia, when we're talking about fake news and misinformation, uh, we generally try and sort of divide things up into three different categories. Um, so misinformation is more of an umbrella term that's basically just used to refer to anything that's sort of inaccurate or false information, regardless of the intentions or um, what the person who's spreading it is, whether they're trying to be misleading or if they're just sharing something they saw that they thought was accurate. Um, there's also disinformation, which tends to be more things like propaganda or um, inaccurate or false information that where it's being knowingly and intentionally spread sort of with the aim of uh, influencing public opinion. But these people are intentionally trying to sort of uh, share false information. Uh, and then fake news is often used more to refer to either manipulated content from real news and media organizations. So as Samantha mentioned before, uh, an AB, something that purports to be from the ABC, but has actually been edited. Um, and the, other, the other type of fake news is sort of made up or unreliable news and media organizations that sort of just have a website or something and they use the same stylings and formats as genuine news or mainstream uh, news article and uh, news organizations, but they're not actually concerned with accuracy. So you see some of those sites with sort of catchy uh, attention grabbing headlines that probably aren't really true that you sort of see spreading around Facebook and Twitter and then you know you might say blah news or something like that and then if you actually sort of do a quick google and you look into it then you know it's someone someone's just made this website up on their own and they don't necessarily really care that much about what, whether the accuracy of the things that they're sharing around um, in terms of strategies that can be used to avoid fake news uh, I think as I mentioned before with misinformation more broadly uh, one thing we should be particularly worried about is when we see something that we sort of want to believe or it's consistent with our existing priors. So um, if you're someone who's quite left-leaning and you something, see something negative about Trump back in the day, you might, you, might be, you might want to be extra wary because there's sort of, this confirms your pre-existing beliefs. You want to believe it, so you might not give it as much scrutiny as you potentially should. Um, and so I also think sort of slowing down and considering the accuracy of the information prior to um, clicking retweet or sharing it on Facebook, or even before you just sort of chat to your friends about it the next time you see them and pass it on as though it's accurate. Uh, I think you should sort of take a moment to think, sort of be like, oh, does this actually seem true? Potentially cross-check sources. So if you see something, but you're not sure, check if other places are reporting it, or if you're not sure that the article was actually from them, 
news website that it's claiming to be. You could go to their site, search for it yourself, see if you can actually find it or if it's been edited or manipulated. Um, and yeah, also if it's from a source you've never heard of before, then you could potentially look into the source and uh, see sort of who's behind this site. Does it seem like a reputable place to get your information from? Uh, make sure that it's reliable before you sort of place too much belief in it or start spreading around to other people. Um, in terms of deciding or labeling what's fake news, I think that's actually a really difficult question because, I mean, as I said before, there's the definitions that we use um, within academia to de designate things as fake news. But I think in a broader sense, it's quite difficult because, you know, whoever you give the power to make this designation, they will have quite a lot of power. So I think we need to think carefully before we decide that, you know, governments can deem things fake news or not fake news or give that power over to um, social media companies to make those decisions for themselves. Uh, so I think it's, yeah, it's quite hard to decide what isn't, what isn't fake news. Um, so I'm not sure who should be the person who makes the ultimate decision. That makes sense. And Samantha, your views on that, uh, what would make something fake news or mis misinformation? Uh, what strategies to avoid it? And who, if anyone, should have the power to determine if something is fake or incorrect? I think that Toby covered that really, really well there. I don't think I can break it down quite as finely into the different categories of uh, fake news. I'd just say that anything that is factually wrong or deliberately trying to, um, yeah, often has an agenda which is trying to make people believe something based on, you know, uh, falsities. So, yeah, I think it's just the, it's, it's the information is, is not correct and often that incorrect information is shared with an agenda. I think that's something just to be wary of. Who to decide, um, I guess, if social media platforms, if it is being shared on their platform, I guess they do have a responsibility to make a judgment uh, whether it is factual, whether it is true, or because we know how damaging incorrect information can be when it is spread widely. It's a hard call to make, um, but I think it's something that they do need to do. Um, and in terms of, in terms of uh, what strategies we can use to avoid fake news, I think Toby already shared some really, really great ones there, but I think it's actually, it's everybody's responsibility to call out when they see what they believe to be fake news. And it's particularly, um, you know, for the people in your circles. So for example, if I saw, you know, a family member or a friend or a colleague getting sucked into what I believe to be a scam and they were going to lose, you know, big amounts of money, I would definitely try and say something and step in. And it's the same with misinformation because it can have damaging consequences in some situations. I think if you see your friends sharing fake news or people saying, oh my gosh, this happened and, and it's based on you know, fake news, I think it's really important to say, okay, what was the source of that? And is that a reputable source? Um, and, and just give them some of those tips as well. Like, you know, have you checked that this has been shared by other reputable sources? Um, or have you heard of this source before? Have you checked the URL? Just things like that, you know, can, can make a big difference. Or, yeah, and just having that second opinion, especially if you're someone that uh, is trusted by this person, then if you question and ask them just to just to think twice about whether this information is true, um, it can have a big difference if, you know, they do trust your judgment. So I think really it is everybody's responsibility to combat, uh, to combat fake news. Um, 
And this is something else that I think, and I'd be really interested to hear from Toby if there's any research behind this, but I often find that when there's a lack of information in an area that, you know, people want to know the answers and there's just this void, no one has the answers, that's when people lend more credence to rumours and to fake news. Um, is, is that something that you've seen in research, Toby? I know earlier you said that when there's an overload of information, that's when people might be susceptible to fake news, but in, the, in a void of information, would that also be the case? Thanks, Samantha. Yeah, so I think there is, so there's like a real strong urge that we generally see, which is that people sort of want a story and they want a narrative. Um, so this is not necessarily looking at fake news directly, but in some of the earlier research um, around misinformation, when they were sort of looking at the effects of just giving people a retraction. So, um, for example, there's a, a factory fire and you say initially it was caused by um, improper storage of flammable materials or something. And then if you just tell them, no, it wasn't caused by that people still tend to rely on it because people want to have an answer, right? So they need, they're not happy with the story that's incomplete. So I think that sort of feeds into that idea of when there's gaps in information, people want something. But if instead you say, oh, it wasn't this, actually it was caused by an electrical fault or something, people are much more willing to sort of give up their false belief and switch over to believing the more accurate thing. Um, so I think that probably does feed into it, right? Which is that when there's a when there's a void of information and particularly people care about it and they're motivated to sort of have an answer, people will start trying to fill in those gaps and they'll use whatever's available. Um, so yeah, it's important to make sure that sort of we can try and answer those questions as best we can. Um, unfortunately, often I think the accurate answer is it's complicated or we're not quite sure, which is not necessarily super uh, satisfying for people. So they might still be drawn towards the more simple but inaccurate narrative. Samantha, there was research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 2018 that showed that good journalism is needed more than ever to counter rumours undermining democracy. Um, it seems that there's been a trend of lowering standards in reporting. Um, is that fair? Um, and just to, to add to that, I mean, you and I both know as, as journalists that a, a particular lobby group, for example, might send in a report on some issue um, and it will get a run in a media outlet. But when you look at the report more carefully or more closely, most of the information in there is either, uh, most of the information in there is sort of not with a very strong base or not really backed up. Um, that's just one example. But yeah, do you think that uh, the standards of reporting have reduced over the years in journalism? Well, I haven't been in the industry for 20 years, so I can't say from personal experience, but I do think that there is a lot of very good journalists out there still and a lot of powerful journalism, which is being done um, at the same time, like I mentioned earlier, it's very easy for anybody to make content these days. And I think that is sometimes confused with journalism. Um, or there are, you know, under-resourced news organisations which are trying to get stuff out to deadline and maybe they don't get to spend as much time on something as they would like or there's not as many senior reporters there to support the more junior reporters as, as they would like. Things like that. There are pressures in the industry and, you know, we've been talking about this for years now, but the 24-hour news cycle is the pressure to get things out, um, to be the first, to not look like you're behind the, behind the ball or that you're late to a story, even if you spent those extra three hours, um, you might be able to pr produce a product of much higher quality or much more insightful article. Uh, so yes, there are those pressures. At the same time, I do still think there is incredible and powerful journalism being done, which is making an impact in people's lives. 
There's definitely some fantastic journalism that is done, uh, and we've seen some great examples of that in the past year here in WA, um, particularly, and around the world. Uh, but I guess it is an interesting point, isn't it, about the, the pressure in newsrooms and how people are, you know, responding to the 24-hour news cycle. They can't always be as focused on um, quality as they used to be. Toby, can I ask you on this? Um, with regard to the MIT research, good journalism needed more than ever to counter rumours undermining democracy. Do you think that it's a fair statement that there has been a trend of lower standards in reporting or no? Um, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really a journalism researcher, so this is a little bit outside my area of expertise, but um, I do think it's sort of, as was noted by Samantha, there has been sort of a lot of pressure on journalism and reporters um, over the last few years, you know, lowering uh, lower resources, uh, decreased ad revenues, sort of coupled with an sort of ever-increasing pace of the news cycle. Um, so I think that does sort of put some journalists in a journalists in a particularly tough spot where sort of they need to produce more news than ever with fewer resources. So they might not necessarily get to go in um, as much depth as they would have liked. Um, I think they also might be at particular risk uh, for some of the things that you see, like stories that spread through social media or sort of a, a video that starts doing the rounds where people, everyone's outraged and there's a narrative develops quite quickly. And then sometimes those things get picked up and reported on. And then later on, it turns out that, you know, if you see the full unedited video, it didn't quite go down the way that it initially seemed. And sort of the person who you thought was a good guy is maybe a bad guy, or at least it's sort of a bit more muddled. Um, so I think sort of there are lots of risks. And I do think that sort of the speed with which news happens now does put journalists in a tough spot and sort of increase the risk that things uh, might go wrong. And I also think um, one thing that potentially poses a risk to journalists and reporters is not necessarily actually the news reporting themselves, itself but some of the sort of uh, things we see journalists sharing sort of their hot takes or opinions on twitter and social media and things sort of just the snide comments that you sometimes see from people with blue check marks on twitter about things and then as more information comes out they sort of might have got the wrong end of the stick so in that situation they're not actually reporting but they can i think potentially uh, damage their credibility a little bit by seeming biased or sort of making a snap judgment it's not actually reporting itself but it's just you know things that they uh post on social media. Um, but I do also think that journalists get a bit of a um, tough rap. So this is actually throwing my fellow researchers and academics under the bus a little bit. But um, I know that within science journalism, lots of people complained that uh, sort of studies end up getting overhyped or people, you know, do a study that seems promising and it gets reported as, oh, this is this big cure for cancer or whatever. Um, and for a while, people sort of said that this is often due to sensational reporting by um, science journalists and news organizations more broadly. But then people did some research into this and they found that actually a lot of the sensational claims don't appear in the original papers, but do start to sort of start cropping in when um, academics and universities write their press releases for whatever their latest study is. So it's not necessarily actually the journalists who are sometimes making these sensational claims, even though they get the blame. Sometimes it actually comes from the academics themselves and they never write it in their scientific paper, but they were sort of happy to hype themselves in a press release and then shift the blame to journalists. So I do think sort of sometimes they get, uh, yeah, unfairly blamed for things that are outside of their control. That's very interesting, actually. Thanks for that, Toby. And thank you, Samantha, as well for your comments. Uh, and I think broadly, it's a problem we've got to deal with around the world to make sure that people are getting the right information, because when they don't, you know, potentially bad things could happen. 
Moving away from this topic just for a moment and to finish on something lighter, uh, you can look back to your time at university. What's the most important piece of advice, Samantha, starting with you, that you would have given yourself on day one at UWA? No, I'm really happy with how I spent my time at uni. I really think that I did meaningful things. I studied hard, but I also spent lots of time in the clubs and a range of the clubs, you know, the French club, um, also students for refugees. And we organised things like welcome to Perth picnics, people from a refugee background. Um, and, you know, those were really, really meaningful things. I played university sports. Um, so I'm really happy with how I spent my time at uni. Maybe I just... Just say, be kind to yourself and make sure you get enough sleep. I think I never got enough sleep. And Toby, just a very quick response to you before uh, our time runs out. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, I actually, so I didn't study at UWA. I've only been here for about nine months working. But um, one thing I did notice because I moved here from the UK is that uh, I think it's really, it's a nice campus. There's, it's a lovely time. So I might my um, advice would be to sort of slow down and try and uh, just enjoy everything and sort of, you know, take the time to really, you know, soak it in, enjoy the time you spend having coffee or lunch with friends and chatting or wandering around, um, enjoying the nature and the sunshine. Toby, Samantha, thank you. Thank you for that advice for your younger selves and to our listeners. And thank you for a very interesting contribution on an important topic. No worries. It was very interesting to have a chat. Yeah, thanks everyone. That was awesome. Keeping your details up to date means you'll never miss out on the benefits of your connection with UWA. It will also help current students picture their careers and ensure we can prepare them for the future they deserve. Visit alumni.uwa.edu.au slash update today.